Uh, What a blessing that we had an opportunity to focus both on the cross in such a real way, singing at the cross, and then to focus on his resurrection with Because He Lives. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 4 this morning. It's part one of a two-part sermon, Temptation and Faith. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 11, verse 6, that without faith it is impossible to please God. The Bible tells us in Romans 14, 23, that whatsoever is not of faith is sin. It's impossible to please God without faith, and that which is not done in faith is sin. It can rightly be said, then, that the things in this life which please God are exclusively those things done in faith. It isn't as much about what as how. Not what we are doing, but rather how we do it. Is it done in faith? Now, obviously, there are many things that cannot be done in faith. If the Bible explicitly says something is wrong, something is, is, is against God, what this means is that this action or this attitude is incompatible with the very essence of who God is And so a man is absolutely unable in any context to do that thing in genuine faith because it is contrary to God's command, it's contrary to God's character, it's contrary to God's word. And may even be something 100% compatible with God, but which is done in a manner which is wrong in pride and selfishness and in anger. And therefore, even though the action itself may be acceptable may be right, it is not done in faith, and so is sinful to a person, to one person or another. So there are explicit things wrong, other things that may be wrong, depending on how we approach them. Within this context, it can be accurately stated that two men can be doing the same thing, the same action. If it's not the action itself that's wrong, but the attitude with which one does it, two men can be doing the same action, one can be doing it in faith, one can be doing it outside of faith, it can be sin to one and not to the other. You can come to church, and if you are coming to church in an attitude of pride, so that you can one-up somebody else, so that you can judge others, so that you can feel special about yourself, well, you can't certainly have all of those things in your heart and be doing that in faith. Therefore, it could be sin to you. Whereas certainly other people with a heart that is aligned with God and with his word and with his desires can, can do so in faith. When we consider the concept of temptation... Temptation is not sin. Temptation is the allurement to sin. And as sin is that which is not done in faith, temptation by definition is seeking to compel you into faithlessness. And today we're going to explore the temptations of Jesus Christ in the wilderness. It's a two-part message. I'll preach the first temptation this morning, the second two temptations this evening... And as we consider this two-part message on temptation, as we consider particularly this morning one of those temptations, we're going to find in these three temptations that Satan gave to Jesus Christ that Satan is calling Jesus not necessarily to actions which are sinful, but to actions which are faithless, selfish, self-sufficient, or proud. And as we consider temptation in our own lives, it is on this plane that we ought to look to them. Don't look for temptation or see temptation explicitly as as a temptation to act, but rather to look at temptation as that which is seeking to divert you from faith and put you on a plane of sight of your solutions of doing things your way, for selfish, for proud, for faithless reasons. And this is why Hebrews 4.15 can tell us in the context of Jesus Christ, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we, and yet without sin. Jesus Christ was tempted in all points like as we, the Bible tells us, Not because he lived through every possible scenario whereby he was tempted to do wrong. Jesus was never tempted to waste his time on the internet. 
Jesus was never tempted to steal a television, right? They didn't have those. That wasn't around then. We can't say that every single possible physical scenario whereby we could be tempted is a scenario that Jesus Christ knew explicitly. But what Jesus did experience is every opportunity to depart from a response of faith in his given circumstances, and rely upon his own reasoning, his own effort, or his own abilities. And the scriptures tell us that he was tempted in all points, and yet he never did once yield to the temptation to operate outside of faith. So we dig into the text this morning in Luke 4, and we understand temptation and faith, the first of these temptations this morning. The scriptures tell us in verse 1, And Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. We pick up in our text immediately after Jesus' baptism. We spent three weeks talking about Jesus and John the Baptist, right? And we talked about um, various important topics about baptism, what it is, what it isn't, what is Holy Spirit baptism, and how is that different from water baptism. And we talked last week particularly about Jesus Christ and John and the difference between the law and the prophets and this new covenant of grace and how Jesus was coming aligned with the law, not opposed to the law. The, the context of Luke is, is um, not very clear as Jesus' baptism is not the forefront of Luke's consideration, but it's very clear in, in the parallel passages of Matthew 4 and of Mark 1 verse 12 that immediately after his baptism, he was led into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. The wilderness is a place of solitude. It would have been east of Jordan, if you're looking on a map. You'll have the Jordan River that kind of separates the west side of Israel from the east side of Israel. And he would have definitely been led east of Jordan into the wilderness there. But the concept of the wilderness is not just location. It is this idea that he was alone. It, it reflects the character of Jesus' temptations. He was without physical support or provision. He didn't have a group of men surrounding him saying, do right, do right, do right. He didn't have accountability in that sense. He, he was spiritually ready. He was filled with the Holy Ghost. But he was physically deprived in every sense of everything that we might physically key into success over temptation. I often um, tell people that which I have learned myself, that we are more tempted when physically we aren't where we might want to be, when we're hungry, when we're tired. Temptation is easier to fall into. It's easier for us to be susceptible to the, te- to the temptations that we face when we are not at our peak. My wife and I are not as patient with our children when we're very tired. We are more tempted to um, blow up, perhaps, to let our anger get the best of us when we're tired. The same can be said of me, I know, at least when I'm hungry. My wife, too, in many circumstances. When I'm hungry, that's not the time that I want to be dealing with my kids coming up and telling me, oh, she did this, he did that, because I'm hungry and, and I'm just, I'm, I'm going to be a little bit short-fused if I'm a little bit more hungry. When we are physically lower, when we don't have all of our physical needs met, we're more susceptible to temptation. Well, Jesus Christ, in the next several verses we're going to see, is going to be at a low point, at what we might call the very lowest of physical advantages. He's going to be hungry. No doubt he's going to be exhausted, and he's not going to have anyone there to help him. And it will be at that point that he, though filled with the Holy Ghost, which is uh, what I just mentioned, extremely important uh, to his success, he will be tempted at that point. So we see more deeply in verse 2. Being 40 days tempted of the devil... And in those days he did eat nothing, and when they were ended, he afterward hungered. Now, when we think of the temptation in the wilderness, we think of the three temptations which Satan presents at the end of Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness. Uh, It is important for us to state briefly here a few practical things, however. Uh, First, that he was tempted throughout this time. These three are at the end, but he was tempted throughout this time. 40 days is over five weeks. So he went over five weeks without food, a very long time, physically possible, however. 
Uh, the human body is certainly not capable of lasting anywhere near this long without water. It's very likely Jesus still had access to water in some way, shape, or form, unless he was supernaturally sustained by the Holy Spirit, which we don't necessarily see here. Uh, so it's likely that he had water. He didn't have food. It was over five weeks that he was without food. And you say, well, pastor, why can't we just call this whole thing supernatural? Why can't we just say that he was sustained uh, by uh, um, the Spirit of God, that this was a transcendent spiritual exercise? Well, we could do that. But in doing so, we lose, I believe, the character of this whole event. Why is it that, that Jesus was not just doing something supernatural, supernaturally sustained? Why would we actually believe here that he, he was five weeks without food, he was very hungry, he must have lost a great deal of weight, that, that he must have had water because you can't live five weeks without water, that there was a physical, that he was doing this physically. Why, why would we believe that? Well, Jesus enters into this event as a man depriving himself of those things which he needs as a man in order to function. If Jesus did this not as a man but as God, then really the whole account loses its effect, doesn't it? If Jesus did this whole thing as God, in the power of of the Spirit and, and in a transcendent spiritual way, then this isn't actually victory over temptation. This is just an exercise to prove a point. But if Jesus is actually a man who is now five weeks without food, 40 days, he is starving. He is weak. He is feeble, as anyone would be after this long without food. Then now he is living in the very most difficult human circumstances possible to resist temptation. And then Hebrews chapter 4 can become a reality that we see that there is no temptation that's taken us that Jesus Christ has not overcome. So Jesus fasts for 40 days afterwards in one of the most perhaps self-explanatory statements in all the Bible. He's hungry. But don't miss the point of this. The point is that Jesus is at his absolute physical lowest. We all know that the body has an incredible effect upon the spirit. And so Jesus is at his lowest physical point, and thus he is most susceptible to temptation. 100% reliant upon the Spirit, because his will and his power and his reason would have had nothing left to withstand the bombardment that Satan was putting toward him. And this is the context with which we read the three temptations. Again, I'll just cover one this morning. And the first temptation that we see beginning in verse 3 is a temptation to take what God has not provided. A temptation to meet his needs apart from God's methods of provision. In verse 3 we read this, And the devil said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, command this stone that it be made bread. Notice the character of this first temptation. The context is bread. And this context is most natural, right? Because Jesus is hungry. So the first temptation that Satan is going to hit him with at the end of the 40 days in these final temptations is the temptation to make for himself bread. The point is that Jesus Christ is feeling that physical urge, that physical desire to eat. And Satan is calling upon him to fulfill that need of his body. He is hungry. And it is within his power as God, to take the stones around him and to make bread out of them and to eat them. We, we will see further on in the book of Luke, Jesus multiply the loaves and the fishes. This is not beyond him by any means. He has veiled deity, but he is still God. He could make those stones into bread. And Satan simply says, look, if you're hungry, it's within your ability to make bread, so just make bread. When I'm at home, I'm working on a sermon, I get hungry, I go up into the kitchen and I eat something. Probably not something I should because I'm in a munchy mood and so, you know, it's not going to be something necessarily good for me. But I eat something. Now, this isn't wrong. My flesh is hungry. It's within my power to meet my need. So I meet my need. There's nothing wrong with that, right? So what is the problem here? Well, the problem is that God had not provided it for him. This was not God's timing. It was not God's way. Jesus is being tempted here 
not to make stones into bread. He can do that. He's being tempted to preempt the divine provision of God by taking that provision upon himself, by doing it his way instead of God's way. He's being tempted to take for himself that which God has not given him. If God wanted him to have bread, God would have given him bread. But he doesn't have bread because God has not chosen to give him bread. Jesus came to this earth to fulfill the will of the Father, not to do his own will, as an example to us. And nowhere in his ministry do we see God call Jesus to lift the veil of his humanity and to exercise the power of his deity in order to serve his own needs. Did you, have you ever noticed that? How many times can you, can you find in the Gospels where Jesus Christ uses his power, his deity, to serve himself? To meet one of his own needs? I, I can't, couldn't think of one. Jesus didn't supernaturally give himself the things he wanted or needed. Jesus testified while on this earth in Matthew chapter 8, verse 20, that the foxes have holes, the birds have, and the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Jesus could have made a home for himself anywhere he needed to sleep, and that's not just pitching a tent and carrying it around with him, right? He could have said tent, and there it is. House, there it is. He could have had what he needed a place to lay his head. But he didn't do that for himself. Because he didn't live this life providing for himself, he allowed the Father to provide for him. Sometimes that was through others. Through the gifts of others to him. Sometimes it was miraculous. One way or another, he trusted God to provide for him. He was not given the freedom to divinely provide for his own needs in that way. So Jesus responds to this temptation. And as he responds to this temptation, he does so by quoting scripture. We read in verse 4. Jesus answered him saying, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Jesus does not fight Satan in his own power here. He doesn't fight Satan on his own terms. In fact, at this point, he likely has no power with which to successfully fight with Satan. He's weak, he's hungry, he's tired. But he knows what the Bible says. He knows that there are more important things in this life than just the physical. That a man does not live by bread alone. That the physical things are not the only things which matter. Now, we need physical things to live. But we also need the spiritual, don't we? And a man can live by bread, but true life, abundant life, the life of blessing in God is found when the word of God's commands are more important, are of more weight to our minds than our own desires, our own rationale, our own perception, even of our needs. And as Jesus gives this response, each of these is quoting Scripture. And when we say Scripture, he's quoting the Old Testament. In fact, all three of these temptations he will quote from Deuteronomy. And in this case, he's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. In Deuteronomy 8, Moses gives a bit of a synopsis to the nation of Israel of God's dealings. And then he renews the call to follow in obedience. And this is what we read in the first three verses of Deuteronomy chapter 8. All the commandments which I command thee this day shall ye observe to do, that ye may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord sware unto your fathers. And thou shalt remember all the ways which the Lord thy God led thee these forty years in the wilderness to humble thee and to prove thee, to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldst keep his commandments or no. And he humbled thee, and suffered thee to hunger, and fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not, neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee to know that man doth not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. This is where that came from that Jesus is quoting here. In the wilderness of Sin, when the nation wandered for forty years, Israel ate what God fed them, right? Israel wandered. God fed them. They ate. When God fed them, they ate. And they ate by God's rules, not by their own rules. 
they had to wake up every morning and glean, didn't they? The manna would come, it would appear like the dew on the grass, and they would have to wake up and they would have to glean it for that day. If they didn't wake up and glean it before the sun arose, it would melt away like the dew, then they did not get food that day because there was no other source of food. The manna was there, they had to wake up, they had to glean that food, and they only could glean enough for that day. They couldn't just say, well, we're going to really work hard on the first day of their week, Sunday morning, right? We're going to really, really work hard and we're going to gather for the entire week so that we don't have to go out and we can just sleep in. They couldn't do that because if they gathered more than they needed for day one, it would rot and worms would be in it and it would stink and it would, it would decompose overnight so that the next morning it was, it was rotten, it was worthless, it couldn't be eaten. They had to live every day by God's provision. They, and, and this was to be a lesson to them. It didn't matter if they had no food, like in the wilderness, or if they had an abundance, like when they finally got into the land of Canaan, which was a land, the Bible says, that was flowing with milk and honey. Remember when the 12 spies came back and they had grapes span between two men because those grapes of Eskel were so big and so fruitful that the one vine was just huge. This is the land. It's fruitful. There's food aplenty. And yet either way, the lesson that God was trying to teach them is that they were 100% reliant upon the promises of God for their provision. The lesson that the true follower of God lives by is not a lesson that is simply related to the physical standards of food and water, not simply hard work and self-sacrifice to bring about what you need, not simply a moral code to bring about blessing, not simply the principles of health or the laws of physics. The true follower of God lives completely reliant upon the promises of God. And what that means is, as each of us aligns ourselves with the principles of God's word, when things don't go exactly as planned, or when we lack that which we would desire, or when we cannot see God's path of success or provision, the solution is not to abandon faith, but to lean on it even more. It's not to say, well, God obviously hasn't come through, so I'm going to do it my own way. It's to wait on God's promises even more. To trust that you have, or you don't have, exactly what God wants you to have, or not have, because God has determined it for you. Jesus could have said on day 40, God has clearly abandoned me. It's been 40 days without food, and here's, there's this temptation. I don't know God's will, but obviously God's will isn't for me to die, to starve on this mountain, to starve in this wilderness. So while I have been trusting that God will provide for my needs, something obviously, uh, God, God's will must be for me to make it myself, so let's go to plan B. It's time for me to provide for myself. Here's some stones. Let's make some bread. But he didn't say that. Because well beyond what he understood physically, that he was hungry, that he might be on the cusp of physical death, Jesus understood that the word of God cannot be broken. And if God says he will provide as we align ourselves with his will, then if we are aligned with his will, he will provide. We can know that. Because that's what God's word has promised us. But understand the condition with which I presented that, because that's very important. We cannot expect provision if we're walking outside of God's will. We cannot be walking in sin and rebellion and then expect God to make up the difference for us. That we do things our way and expect God to conform himself to our manner of living. I can't blow all of my savings, in other words, on a new boat and then wonder why God hasn't given me enough money to feed my family. It doesn't work that way. The principle is this. You will be tempted all throughout your life to take what God has not provided and to meet your needs apart from God's manner of provision. All throughout your life, you will be tempted to meet your needs your way instead of waiting on God to meet your needs His way. You will be, you will be tempted to go outside of God's principles, to go outside of God's will, to go outside of what God has taught us in the Word, to go outside of His 
thou shalts and thou shalt nots, to go outside of his character, to go outside of his principles to meet our needs. You will be tempted to lie or cheat to get yourself through things. You will be tempted to take something that doesn't belong to you and you will be tempted to rationalize it. Well, they have so much more than me. They won't even miss it. That business won't miss it. They won't miss, they won't miss the little that I'm going to take off the top. You will be tempted to do that. You will be tempted to meet your desires and your needs your way and your whole life this temptation will be before you. But the faith response is to understand that we don't just live by the things that we have. We live by the word of God. And if God wants you to have that thing that you're tempted to take by some means that is outside of his character, he will give it to you if he wants you to have it in his time and in his way. Name the area of life. You will be tempted to meet that need yourself. And we've already presented the kind of examples which illustrate what we mean by this. The children of Israel needed to eat, didn't they? I mean, they needed to eat. They were wandering around in the desert. They needed to eat. They needed food. Their children needed food. Their cattle needed food. They needed water. But what made it obvious that they were trusting God for their daily bread? Well, that the manner in which they obtained their food was 100% consistent with God's revealed will and God's revealed word. Perhaps they could have at some point in their journey found food along the path, gathered food from a field, gone outside and gotten the food on their own. But this would have been inconsistent with God's design for them as he promised to give them food and he did so with manna. They could gather as much food as they wanted in any given morning, but if they tried to keep it until the next day, it would spoil because this was inconsistent with God's design for them as he promised them only enough food for that day. They could gather only one day's amount of food on the, on the sixth day and then expect there to be food on the Sabbath. But if they went out on the Sabbath looking for food, it wouldn't be there because it was inconsistent with God's prescription. He told them, gather what you need for two days on the sixth day because on the Sabbath day you may not go out and glean. Now, this would change, though, wouldn't it? They would get into the promised land, that land flowing with milk and honey, and the manna stopped. The first day in the land, the manna stopped. Why? Not because they are now outside of God's will by gleaning from the fields and by farming and by working. In fact, that was God's design for them all along. Get the fields, do the work, reap the harvest, and live off the harvest. The manna was a temporary provisioning of God, a miraculous provisioning of God in the time where they had no other food until such time that God could bring them into his will, his perfect will, the land of Canaan, where they could work and they could farm and they could do everything that God had called man to do to provide. Was that still God's provision? Absolutely, right? That's why the manna stopped because God now had a new way for them to be fed and that new way was the labor of their own hand, was to till the fields, was to reap of the land. Jesus needed to eat. He needed food like anyone else. We said it. He could have made food, but the Father must have made it very clear to him that the Father would sustain him his way. And so he waited and waited and waited. So we find that God has made to his followers promises. And that each of these promises is accompanied by a means of acquiring them by faith. And whether we talk about physical promises or spiritual promises, if God has said, this is yours in Christ, this can be yours, this is a manner of living, then there's a means by which to get it in faith. In every element of your life, there's a way to pursue that element in faith and to get God's best. And there's a way to do it, probably many ways, to do it your own way and to find certainly what is not God's best. Even if you, through that way, are provided for. And so what I'd like to do as we just focus on this one temptation this morning is give you two examples. I'm going to give you the physical example, the obvious physical example that God has promised us to provide. And then I'm going to give you a spiritual example. And I'm going to break it up in such a way that as we understand this, 
the material and the spiritual ways that God has promised to provide for us, we're going to see the promise, and then we're going to see God's way, and then we're going to see man's way. And I hope that what this can be is kind of a template for you. I'm going to show you one physical, I'm going to show you one spiritual promise that God has given to us, and then God's way of fulfilling that promise through his word, and then man's alternatives. But what I would encourage you to do is in every area of your life where you're meditating on this, draw that same chart. What has God offered to us? What has God said we can have? Peace, joy, patience, physical provision. As you walk through everything that God has has promised us, what, what has he said? How has he told us we can have it? And what are the world's alternatives? Because the world is always seeking those things as well, their way. So let's talk about a couple of these this morning. And the first that I want to talk about is the one given in Matthew chapter 6, quite clearly, food and raiment. Food and raiment. This is a promise that we consider in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25, and then we'll read verses 31 and 32 as well. The whole passage is very helpful, uh, giving us context. But Jesus said in verse 25, Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life, what ye shall eat, or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body, what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than meat, and the body more than raiment? Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of these things. Jesus explicitly says here, when it comes to food and clothing, those basic necessities of life, you don't have to spend your time clamoring like the world does to find provision for these things. God knows you need them, and he has promised to take care of them. We don't need to live in a place of constant struggle and worry over the next day because God knows our needs, and we can trust him to provide. Well, how? How has God promised to provide food and raiment? Well, as we look in Scripture, we find I'm going to give you three methods. God's means of provision. And the first, of course, as we just saw with the Jews as well, is work, right? Israel was provided for 40 years with manna, and then at the end of those 40 years, God gave them the land that he expected them to work. And that is the same with us that God has given us to work. In fact, the scriptures tell us in 2 Thessalonians 3, 10 through 12, For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if, you, if any would not work, neither should he eat. Now, if God has promised to give us food, and Paul is saying there is a context within which a man should not eat, then that's because he is going outside of God's promise, right? It has to be. And so if he does not work, he should not eat. That shows us that God desires man to work in order to provide. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. Instead of working, they're into everybody else's business. They're gossipers. Now them that are such, we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. Eat your own bread by the fruit of your labor. This is God's will. This is how God provides. But the thought of, of... Working, of course, though God has promised to provide these things, um, sometimes work doesn't work out, right? And we see that in Scripture as well, that there are times where work is not the method. It will not always be explicitly the method through which God provides. A second thing that we see in Scripture as far as provision is God's people. Now, these last two provisions are not perpetual, right? They're temporary. But God has provided through mainly through work, but then in the absence of work, God provides through his people. And this is specifically for those who cannot provide for themselves. In James chapter 1, verse 27, the Bible says, Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. God commands specifically that we help widows and orphans. We, we see commands to help one another and to meet one another's needs, um, and yet we see specifically the vulnerable, the widows and the orphans, as James gives them. Uh, um, there, there's several other passages on widows we're not going to go to today for sake of time, um, 1 Timothy chapter 5 is very explicit, but God says that women and children, the innocents in society who have lost the means by which to provide for themselves, ought to be provided for by the church. 
when the family, and only when the family is unwilling to do their due diligence of providing for them anyway. And James is quite clear here, however, not just about fatherless and widows, but in James chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, we see this. If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? So James says, take care of the widows and orphans. We see in 1 Timothy 5 a very explicit command about what widows actually ought to be provided for and what widows ought to go and find a new husband or what widows ought to be provided for by their family rather than being provided for by the church. But then James says, look, if you have a brother in need and he does not have those things that God has promised him, if he doesn't have food and raiment, and you look at him and you say, okay, depart, be ye warmed and filled, right? Be ye clothed. We'll be praying for you, brother. And then you go home to your plenty without having helped him. James says, what good is it? What good is your faith? What good is saying be ye warmed and filled if you're not willing to put your money where your mouth is? God has ordained that God's people provide for those who are in need. So work, the primary means by which God has, provided, has called us to be provided for, food and raiment. God's people. And then third, we do see in Scripture as well that God chooses to use miraculous pagan intervention. God chooses to use unbelievers to provide for believers sometimes. Even against themselves, we might say. I won't turn to any of the passages today, but good examples in the Old Testament would be Cyrus, the great Persian king who allowed Israel to go back and rebuild the temple after 70 years of captivity. Cyrus had no loyalty to the God of the Bible, and yet God used him miraculously to provide for his people. The children of Israel were in the land of Goshen when they came into Israel at the, at, during the time of the famine in the days of Joseph. Goshen was the best most fruitful part of the land of Egypt, and yet God used a pagan pharaoh to supply Israel with this wonderfully fruitful land. When God lays it upon the heart of an unbeliever to uniquely bless a child of God in a way that is needed, it's a beautiful thing. It's a fantastic thing. It's, it's God's intervention. And oftentimes that person doesn't actually intend to be used by God. He's just for whatever reason, compelled to do something. I've heard many pastors talk about um, unbelievers who have donated to them land, donated to them a building. And here's this unbeliever who, for whatever reason, has decided to donate to this church. They don't end up going to the church. They don't invest in the church other than that they gave them the land, that they gave them the building. Why would an unbeliever do that? Your guess is as good as mine. God. God chose to give, them that, to give the church that land, and so the church got that land. God does that. Miraculous pagan intervention. God does that. Are you gleaning the principle that God has promised to provide? The provision we consider here is food and raiment. God has a specific way in which we exercise faith to tap into those promises. Now, we can just sit on our couch, not eating potato chips, right, because we don't have food or raiment, and say, well, God has promised to provide. But that's not aligning with God's will. The faith response demands certain method of provision. First, work. Next, help of God's people for those unable to work. Finally, miraculous pagan intervention for those who have been uniquely touched by the hand of God to do something for a child of God. And what it means to have faith in God's provision is to trust that he will give the work or for the church, that the church will trust enough to give the help necessary in order to, to provide for the needs of others. So then, if, those are, if that's God's way, this is God's way, as we look at that physical promise of food and raiment, God's way of seeing that physical promise come to fruition. What are man's alternatives to God's provision? What are man's ways of getting food and raiment which defy God's ordained methods and thus deny God's promises? What are the ways that we could be compelled to go outside of faith in order to provide for ourselves? Oftentimes we see these as cheap copies 
of God's provision. It gets us by, but it bears no marks of faith, and so it will not bear the marks of God's blessing and the joy of provision. The first is theft. This is, this is the, the obvious one, right? Theft. That if we don't have it, we take it from, other, from someone else. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, Paul says, Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. Paul says, rather than steal, take that which does not belong to you for your own enrichment, work to provide for your needs, but notice what he also says, then to give to others' needs as well. That's the way God's ordained it, right? You work, and for those that are in trouble for one reason or another, you help them. Second, I'll call it negligent assistance. I want to be careful with this. I'm calling it negligent assistance as a point, and I'll explain what that means. I want to be very clear. I want to be very precise about what I mean here. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 10 through 12, we read this already, that if a man does not work, he should not eat. If we do a, a search on the words in the Bible, sluggard or sloth, in your King James, I don't know what words they use in newer translations, and you read up on what a lazy person is, what a lazy person seeks, a man who seeks in his pride to live off of the kindness of wealth of others, when he has every opportunity to care for himself, he doesn't we find a tremendous amount of condemnation in the Proverbs in particular about that kind of a man. Now, we often have people coming to our church, and I'm sure churches all around this area, that are asking for money. Some of them are legitimate needs, true concerns. Others are people who are lazy, entitled, and living off the generosity of others. But, you know, this isn't as necessary in the church context anymore, is it? Because we live in what we would call a welfare state. It's a state where the government gives an inordinate amount of money to people who cannot or will not provide for themselves. Now, the concept of welfare is well-meaning and right. That in tough times, there's a lifeline for people to have money to get them through tough times. And that's why I call this point negligent assistance. Because I believe that what we see today is the government usurping the role of God's provision, seeking to replace a people's need to trust in God for their, their welfare with a compulsion to trust in government for their welfare. And I call it negligent assistance because while it's my tendency to be a little more dogmatic in this point, there is perhaps a legitimate case to be made for those who use the system properly, temporarily, without being dishonorable, lazy, or acting in a wrong manner. But what is unquestionably wrong is where a person can choose to not work, being perfectly able to do so, and be provided for at the expense of those who do work. And we all know that this is a problem. This is outside of God's will. In a welfare state, which is what we are living in, a person could make presumably more money not working than working. A person can be far more benefited by not having any marketable skills than trying to find a place for their marketable skills to be used. Where a person can live in, in comfort, true comfort, sparing few luxuries while receiving a lifestyle at the expense of those who do work. And we would all agree, if we believe the Bible, that this is negligent assistance. And this is a great evil. People are encouraged to not work. And that society, the society that feeds them, must simply trust in some innate desire that they have inside of them to get up and to work, even though they don't really need to. And apart from the conviction of the Holy Spirit, the natural man will always want more for less, right? <coughs> And it is only the ethic of Christianity, the work ethic compelled by working for something higher than yourself, that encourages any sort of integrity in work ethic. 
even among those who are not believers, any compulsion that they truly have unto integrity and in work ethic is a compulsion that's borrowed by a Judeo-Christian worldview. And the welfare state has done a great deal to cripple this nation's prosperity, living in a nation with people living off of handouts. And this is, of course, not, it's not an economic lesson today. That's not my intent. But when we become reliant upon government to such a degree that a simple government threat of removing our benefits is enough to coerce acts of compliance, then we're in a welfare state. A welfare state rewards, it's not just a lifeline. A welfare state rewards laziness and demotivates innovation, risk, and work ethic. And this is the primary alternative, I would say, that the Western world has concocted to replace God's means of provision, namely work, God's people, and miraculous intervention. This negligent negligent assistance is an alternative, a human alternative to God's blessing. It's trusting in man, not God. Quite literally, putting government in the place of God. That as a person has a need, they don't feel compelled to go to the Lord with that problem, or to have to trust in the Lord, or to have to align themselves with God's will, because they have a fallback method that they can have for any number of months in order to to take care of themselves. And so negligent assistance, again, not any assistance, but the philosophy that has grown out of the welfare state is dangerous. And then finally, man's alternative is unsustainable debt. Debt itself is not forbidden in the Bible. But there are some warnings about debt in the Bible. In Proverbs 22, verse 7, the Bible says, The rich ruleth over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender. The Bible warns that when one borrows, he becomes a servant to the one unto whom, to whom lended him the money. The Bible also warns against becoming a surety for another person's debt. We read this in Proverbs 22, verse 26, and then again in Psalm 37, 21. Proverbs 22, 26, Be not thou one of them that strike hands, makes deals, or of them that are sureties for debts. And then uh, Psalm thirty-seven twenty-one says, The wicked borroweth and payeth not again, but the righteous showeth mercy and giveth. Becoming a surety for another man's debt might work out, but it might also end up in your utter ruin over their poor money choices. But the thing which I state to be a worldly alternative to God's means of provision is when we place ourselves in a situation where our debt is unsustainable where we are spending, not, not just spending money that, that uh, is beyond what we could pay in cash, but when we are spending more money than we are making, when we are borrowing money to pay back money we've already borrowed. This is an unsustainable cycle of debt that is a human alternative to God's methods. Our society today is literally founded upon debt. And while it is possible to operate outside of debt in our society, Makes, society makes it quite difficult for the average person to do so. But what is always avoidable is being in debt beyond what we are able to sustain. When we're taking out loans to pay for loans, when we are not able to pay the monthly payments and can only pay minimum payments, accruing massive interest on those payments, this is unsustainable debt, and it reflects that we have chosen to trust something beyond God to meet our needs. That we have gone outside of God's provision and placed ourselves under the mercy of men to determine our livelihood and well-being. And this is a copy. This is a, a kind of faith, a, a copy of the kind of faith that we ought to have in God to meet our needs. It is the way of being provided for without us having to be on our knees, asking God, waiting on Him for timing. It is us making bread for ourselves in the wilderness rather than waiting on God and going those 40 days while we're hungry. But I'm hungry now, so let's just make the bread and be done with it. Yes, but man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. I may have stepped on some toes this morning. I don't intend to. I'm not trying to, as I mentioned in Sunday school this morning for those of you that were here, 
we all stand before God and answer to God for our decisions. And I'm not going to say how much debt is, is fine and not, and, and I'm not going to say how much assist, assistance is fine and not. I'm not in a, st- in a place to tell you that. I'm not in a place to, to stand over you and say you should or shouldn't be. But let me ask you this question. As we think of these three points, um, let me go back. As we think of those three points, God's way, man's way, God's provision, man's provision. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. As we consider living a life of faith, as God has called us to live, can your choices in this one avenue, remember, we can do this for every avenue of life, in this one avenue, can your choices, the choices that you make as far as provision is concerned, can you stand before God and say, God, this is a mark of my faith in you? Can you genuinely do that in your heart? Say, God, the choices I made to do that or not do that, to, to, to go there or not go there, is a mark of my faith in you to provide. And this is, in my heart, I truly believe that this was your method of providing for me. And if so, we'll praise the Lord. But if you can't say that, then I would encourage you just to meditate on it. And to consider what might need to change in your life so that you can be living a life of faith. So that you can be trusting in God's provision. Now, some of us uh, have this physical area that, that touches us a little bit more than others. Some people are well taken care of physically. Other people are not. Some people will, will be tempted in this area. Others will not as much because of the, the blessings that the Lord has given them. So we consider this physical way of being tempted. To take that which God has not provided to meet our needs apart from God's methods. That one is probably most consistent with what Jesus was feeling because he was physically hungry and he needed physical food. That's a a one-to-one comparison. But one more today that I'd like to do just by way of example. And this is an emotional or spiritual promise that God has given to us. And I want to go through the same method. What has God promised? How has God provided it? How does man try to provide for it himself in order that you can understand how you can do this for anything, for any area of your life? And the promise that we're going to explore in the spiritual realm is the promise of peace. God has promised his children peace. We live in an age that is anything but peaceful. Not just externally, wars and rumors of wars, but internally. The amount of people that are, are being diagnosed with clinical depression, anger, issues, bipolar, schizophrenia, the inner turmoil in people's hearts and minds today is just tremendous. There's no peace. They have no peace. And here's the thing. It'll be next week's memory verse. God promised us peace. John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. And if God has said this, and this is one of countless verses that we could go to to prove the idea that God wants us to be a people that that have peace, then what's wrong? Then then why, why, why is... Is there so much turmoil? If God provided for it, then how do we tap into that provision? And what are the ways that we will be tempted to find that provision outside of God's ways? Again, there's several verses we could go to. This won't be comprehensive this morning. I would encourage you to take it and run with it if you'd like. Thankful prayer. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 and 7 says this, Be careful, that word means anxious, for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Don't be full of cares. Why? Because you can pray with thanksgiving and leave your concerns before a God that knows And not just take them to him, but leave them with him. 
so that it's his problem, not your problem. So that you go to God and say, God, I'm having this need, this trial, this tribulation, this concern. God, there's something going wrong. It's a health concern. It's a financial concern. It's a physical concern. It's an interpersonal relationship concern. It's a family issue. It's a friend issue. It's a job issue. And we are tempted to let those issues control our life. We're thinking about it. We can't sleep. We don't eat well. We're struggling. We're confused. We're upset. It's causing problems in our relationships. It's boiling over. We can't focus on our job anymore. We can't do it right. All of this boiling from the circumstances that are around us that we're stewing on, that we're worrying about, that we're, we're, we're juggling. And yet Christ says, bring them to me and leave them there. And don't be anxious. And what I will replace that anxiety with is peace. Now, those of you that know my circumstance over the past six months know I'm not perfect on this. I've, hit, I've, I've had health issues that started in March because of, I believe, stress. And I had to be reminded of this myself. So, so uh, this is not us saying we've got this right, me saying I've got any of this right, and imposing it. But this is what the Bible says. Also a knowledge of God. Thankful prayer and a knowledge of God. This is an extension of thankful prayer. Psalm 119.65 says, Great peace have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. Those who know God, those who know God's word, will have peace. Those who understand that God is sovereign over all will have peace. Those who can go to God in prayer and genuinely leave their concerns with Him, knowing that God can handle them, will have peace. This is a promise. And God has provided the divine means for fulfilling that promise through prayer and knowledge of Him. But there are worldly alternatives, are there not? Ways to seek peace outside of trusting in God. And as we think of this, the most common is circumstances. The worldly alternative of circumstances. That in order to have peace, I must put myself in a place. Enough money, enough power, surrounded by people that like me, surrounded by the things that I want, surrounded by the circumstances that I would dictate will make me happy. And I'm not at peace Unless I'm there. I'm not at peace unless everything is running right. And when something goes wrong, my peace is broken, my anxieties kick up, I get fears, I get concerns, I get worries, and it all just starts over again until I can find the next point of equilibrium. So the world says, if you want to be happy, stand in line for six hours for the new iPhone. You can't be happy without it. So the world says, if you want to be happy... Get the TV. Go on the fishing trip. Do this. Do that. Do what you want to do because it will make you happy. If your marriage isn't making you happy, get a new marriage. If your relationships aren't making you happy, get new relationships. If your church isn't making you happy, go find a new church. Change your circumstances. Don't change yourself because there's nothing wrong with you. Change your circumstances to bring about peace. Conform the world to you. Right? Isn't that what so much of the protesting for the last year has been about? The world needs to conform to my ideas of happiness. I'm offended. You need to conform to me so that I'm no longer offended. Conform the circumstances to me. Bring about peace. It's a cheap copy of God's promise of peace that transcends circumstances. Why? Because everything will fail you. If you're looking for peace in this group of people, this group of people will fail you at some point. If you're looking for peace and contentment in your pastor, your pastor will fail you at some point. If you're looking for it in money, money will fail. Things, things will fail. It will fail. Everything on this earth will disappoint you if you take it to its end. But God can't fail. He can't. Which means he won't. Which means if your peace is rooted in him, regardless of the circumstances that are going on, then it will remain consistent. 
So the world wants to be dictated by circumstances. So the world says, get your circumstances where they need to be, and then you'll have peace. But secondly, of course, peace through escapism, right? Drugs, alcohol, gambling, amusements, entertainments. The world is stuck in neutral, <laughs> trying to escape responsibility. Why is it that sports events are so popular, that drugs are so popular, that alcohol is so popular? Because rather than face their troubles, mankind through every generation has sought to hide from them by various means. Escape their responsibilities, escape their concerns by dulling their senses. So that for a couple hours on Sunday afternoon, they can go to the ball game and forget everything else. So that for a couple hours on a Friday night, they can be at the bar and forget about their troubles. And they're finding peace by escaping life. And really, so much of what today is, is about escaping reality. Why is the video game industry so strong? Why is movie industry so strong? The music industry so strong? Now, those things aren't intrinsically bad. But why are they gaining so much in popularity? Why are they becoming multi-billion dollar industries? Why is the pornography industry so strong? It's because people are escaping responsibility, reality, by running into a make-believe world to avoid life. And then they come back into the real world and they can't cope because they have no peace. So they have to keep running back into whatever their thing is, whether it's illegal or legal. They have to keep running back into it to find peace. This is just another example. But we could do this all day. We could, we could spend today thinking of topics. Joy. R marriage. How to deal with marriage. Purchases. We could go all day thinking of different topics and then finding out what, how God would have us to live and then understanding the ways that the world has presented for us to bypass God's provision, God's means, God's way, in order to meet it ourselves. And this was the temptation. Jesus was tempted to step outside of God's provision and meet his needs his way. And every day we face this. And in a society that is prosperous... It's not hard to meet our needs outside of God. We must resist this temptation. We must come out of this world to walk by faith. We must lay our needs at God's feet and earnestly seek His word in regard to how those needs ought to be properly met. And perhaps those, there are those in this room who, having considered this passage this morning, have had the Holy Spirit place His finger on some area of your life where you have not been allowing God's provision to meet your needs. Maybe it's physical. Maybe it's spiritual. Maybe it's something I've mentioned. Maybe it's something I haven't. That's, uh, these were examples. That's the Holy Spirit's job to place His thumb on your need. If the Spirit of God has convicted you about a manner of living in which you have not reflected faith, remember where we started. That without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. You can get through life on those alternatives. Jesus would have been fed if He'd have turned the stones into bread. But what would He have been yielding of the blessings of the Father. And that's my question for you this morning. As you think of maybe this area of your life where, where the thumb has been put on your problem, and being transparent this morning, I told you already, this peace thing is something I've been wrestling with. This is one of my problems. And as I think about God putting his thumb on this problem in my life, thinking about God's way, man's alternatives, and then thinking as well, and I would encourage you to do this, 
if God has a way and God has a blessing for that way, what are the blessings that I am yielding by doing it my way instead of God's way? What are the things I'm giving up spiritually? Maybe you don't even know what they are. You couldn't even comprehend what those blessings might be. But what are those things that you are yielding by doing it your way? Maybe it's quicker. Maybe it's easier. But at what cost? Now this evening we'll continue in Luke 4, verses 1 through 13. We'll look at the final two temptations. But I'd like us really to meditate upon this one because in many ways I believe this is the one that we as Western civilization Christians in 2016 might struggle with the most. Because it's so easy for us to find the alternatives for God's provision in this society. They're cheap copies. They won't hold up under pressure. But they're easy. And they're attainable. And as we do so, may I just encourage you to allow the Holy Spirit to search your heart. And determine to seek God's will, God's way. To see our needs met His way. And not just his way, but as Jesus testified also, his timing. Let's close in prayer.